This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Dr. Bloom and friends, I must begin by saying how glad I am to be here in St. James with you all this evening. A little earlier on, Dr. Bloom invited all those who had not been here before, not been in St. James and not been to alternatives, to put up their hands. Well, I should have put up my hands because I haven't been here before, I haven't been inside this, this building before. Of course, I have glimpsed it from the outside on a number of occasions on my way to the Royal Academy. Uh, sometimes, of course, I glimpsed it behind a multitude of colorful stalls. And I, I believe on one or two occasions, eh, I even had a stall around uh, those colorful stalls. But I must admit, I didn't actually find my way into St. James or into alternatives. So I'm all the more glad to be, to be here this evening. And I'm, I'm glad to have been able to, to witness the little preliminaries, the, the rigmarole, as I believe they were called, and uh, especially to witness the, the lighting uh, of the candles. Uh, I was asked to, to, to name a quality hmm? uh, which could be associated with one of those three uh, candles. Huh? This isn't really quite in my notes, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, I was asked to think of a quality, and of course, as you heard, the quality of which I thought was courage. Because I thought, well, probably everybody who comes here says something like peace, huh? or compassion, huh? faith. I thought, well, I'll be a little bit different. I don't suppose many people would think of courage. But I also thought of courage for a very definite reason. The reason being that I think that in the world of today, if we're concerned in any way with the upholding of any sort of spiritual values, we do need a great deal of courage. Love isn't enough. We need courage to implement that love and act upon it. Truth isn't enough. Well, yes, in a sense, truth is enough, but we also need the courage to stand up for the truth, to stand by the truth in the midst of a world which only too often seems to deny the truth. So I was very glad to be able to witness and to that extent to take part in the candle lighting ceremony this evening. I was also glad to witness and take part in it because in a way I felt myself to be on familiar ground because in the context of Buddhist worship very often we light and we offer candles, most often 
we offer them to the Buddha. And in some forms of Buddhism, we offer them reciting a little verse, which may be translated something like this. This light, this candle, I offer to the Buddha, the enlightened one, who destroys the darkness, the darkness of ignorance. So the lighting of a candle, the lighting of candles has this sort of association for Buddhists, this sort of association for me. Light is of course a universal symbol. We find this symbol in all religions, in all spiritual traditions. I remember during my days in India, I often had the opportunity of witnessing the Hindu Diwali, or Diwali, the festival of lights. And on that occasion, it was very, very interesting, very beautiful to see that the windows and the doors of all the houses in the neighborhood would be just lit up with rows and rows of little lamps. Of course, they were all oil lamps. And they presented all the more beautiful a sight when in that particular town, as was the case still in those days, there was no electricity, no gas, just little oil lamps. And the whole of the, the town, the whole of the city, would be illuminated with rows and rows of these little oil lamps in the windows, on the doorsteps, on the roofs, on the edges of the flat roofs, all over the town, all over the city, all representing, all symbolizing for pious Hindus the triumph of light over darkness, the triumph of the forces of good over the forces of evil. Light in Buddhism represents especially spiritual knowledge, represents what we may describe as transcendental insight, represents the higher wisdom. The Buddha, after his enlightenment, after his attainment of enlightenment, is represented as saying to his disciples, there arose in me knowledge, there arose in me wisdom, there arose in me light. And it's therefore perhaps not surprising, perhaps it's not just a coincidence that the Buddha is known in English as the enlightened one. Though not of course in the sense of 18th century humanistic enlightenment. And of course it's about the Buddha that I'm speaking this evening. And at, at this point I have a little confession to make. I have to confess that, glad as I am to be here in St. James this evening, it's a very long time since I was in a church at all. Apart, of course, from sightseeing. And it's a very long time indeed since I actually spoke in a church. I was actually looking up in my 
records the last time this happened and I discovered the last time was on Sunday the 15th of July 1987 which is almost exactly seven years ago and on that occasion, on that Sunday, that Sunday morning I delivered a sermon in the chapel of King's College, Cambridge and I remember this occasion I don't so much remember what I actually said uh, I very often don't but I remember <laughs> I remember the congregation because the congregation which was about 300 strong consisted as far as I could see mainly of American tourists <laughs> and they hadn't come for me oh no they'd come to hear the music they'd come to hear the famous King's College Choir uh, but of course they had 40 minutes of me first <laughs> but anyway be that, that as it may have been uh, this evening I'm going to do more or less what I did on that occasion seven years ago in the chapel of King's College Cambridge since I'm in Rome so to speak I hope I can say that in an Anglican building huh? <laughs> since I'm in Rome so to speak I'm going to do what Rome does huh? or at least what I think Rome may still do I'm going to give a sermon on a text perhaps it's not quite what trendy CAB vicars even rectors you know do nowadays and uh, I must admit incidentally but for quite a few years I was myself rather prejudiced against this word sermon hmm? Well, I didn't like to use it I avoided it huh? I didn't like for instance to hear the Buddha's discourses to his disciples referred to as sermons people will sometimes speak of the Buddha's first sermon I didn't like that but in recent years I've, I've, I've changed my mind I've concluded that sermon is after all a good old English word hmm? uh, it comes to us by the old French from the Latin sermo or discourse probably from serere which means to join together so not such a bad old word after all we may think hmm? of course some of our greatest English literature exists in the form of sermons believe it or not one thinks for instance of the sermons of John Donne and of Jeremy Taylor one thinks even of the sermons also of Cardinal Newman so I'm going to give a sermon this evening I'm going to give a sort of sermon or at least this talk of mine will be a sermon to the extent that it is based on a text and I'm going to take the text from the Buddhist scriptures I'm going to take my text from the Pali Mahaparinibbana Sutta. So perhaps I should first of all say just a little about the Buddhist scriptures. 
In some ways you're lucky not to be a Buddhist, those of you who are not Buddhists, because the Buddhist scriptures are absolutely enormous. Christians are quite lucky, they just have, well, it's not a very small volume, it's quite a thick volume, uh, even printed on India paper, they just got this one volume Bible. Muslims are even luckier, they've got something much smaller. But Buddhists have got several hundred volumes of scriptures. So if you're a serious-minded uh, Buddhist who takes your studies seriously, well, in a way, you've got a problem. Hmm? <laughs> but, but, of course, some of the Buddhist scriptures are better known than, uh, than, than others. Huh? Let me just give you some idea of how the, the Buddhist scriptures are organized and divided. They're usually divided into three great main collections. First of all, there's the collection of the discourses of the Buddha. Talks given by the Buddha, or if you like, sermons delivered by the Buddha. Some of them are long. Some of the Mahayana Sutras are several volumes long, just one discourse. Others are very short, just a few lines, even a few verses. So, first of all, the collection of discourses. And then, there's the collection of rules for monks and nuns. So not so many of these, there are only five thick volumes, eh? which uh, most monks and nuns find quite sufficient. <laughs> so the collection of rules for monks and nuns, eh? many of which of course are really no longer relevant in the modern world. Eh? And then there's a third collection which is rather difficult to translate. The term is Abhidharma, but let's say the connection of the rather more analytical, rather more philosophical teachings. Hmm? So there are these three great collections, each consisting of many, many volumes. Eh? The collection of the discourses, the collection of the rules for monks and nuns, and the collection of the, the more philosophical type of teachings. Hmm? Now, if we take the first collection, the collection of discourses, discourses by the Buddha, this consists of four groups of discourses. And the first of these groups is known as the group of long discourses. The discourses are simply long. They're classified as long regardless of their actual subject matter. And in the Pali recension of the scriptures, I won't go into this question of how many recensions of the Buddhist scriptures there are, but in the Pali recension of the scriptures, there are 34 of these long discourses. Some of them are about the same length as the Christian Gospels. And I'm going to take my text from discourse number 16, eh? known as the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, or discourse, or if you like, sermon of the great deceased. That's how it's usually translated. And the deceased in question is the decease of the Buddha himself. Buddhists don't usually speak of the death of the Buddha. Out of reverence for the Buddha, they speak of his Mahaparinibbana, which means something like final passing away, or great decease. The Buddha, as you probably know, died or passed away 
at the age of about 80. Before he passed away, he went on a quite extensive farewell tour. Don't forget he went on foot. And for a man of 80, it was quite an undertaking. But he wanted to bid farewell through the different groups of disciples that he had scattered all over northeastern India. So he walked from village to village, from one group of little huts to another, from town to town. And wherever he went, he gave teachings. And some of these teachings are contained in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. The Mahaparinibbana Sutta is the story, so to speak, of that final tour of the Buddha. It describes his meetings with his various groups of disciples. It describes the teachings he gave them, right up to the very end, eh? when, as a very old man, aged 80, he passed away, lying between two beautiful sal trees. Eh? So, in the passage I'm going to read, which is our text for the evening, the Buddha is addressing Ananda. Ananda is the Buddha's cousin, one of his cousins, and his long-term companion. Ananda has, has been with the Buddha day in and day out for about 20-odd years. Ananda is sometimes known on account of his personal closeness to the Buddha as the St. John of Buddhism. St. John being, of course, as most of you will know, the beloved disciple. And in this particular passage, this particular text, the Buddha is addressing Ananda on what you might think is a rather strange subject. He's addressing Ananda on the subject of the eight kinds of assemblies. So I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to read this text. Ananda, there are these eight kinds of assemblies. They are the assembly of Katiyas. I'll tell you what Katiyas are in a minute. Huh? The assembly of Brahmins. The assembly of householders. The assembly of ascetics the assembly of devas of the realm of the four great kings, the assembly of the thirty-three gods, the assembly of maras, the assembly of brahmas. I remember well, Ananda, many hundreds of assemblies of katiyas that I have attended. And before I sat down with them, spoke to them, or joined in their conversation, I adopted their appearance and speech, whatever it might be. And I instructed, inspired, fired, and delighted them with a discourse on Dhamma. And as I spoke with them, they did not know me and understand and wondered, who is it that speaks like this? A deva 
or a man. And having thus instructed them, I disappeared. And still they did not know he who has just disappeared. Was he a deva or a man? I remember well many hundreds of assemblies of Brahmins, of householders, of ascetics, of devas of the realm of the four great kings, of the thirty-three gods, of Maras, of Brahmas, and still they did not know he who has just disappeared. Was he a deva or a man? Those Ananda are the eight assemblies. So let's get into this a little gradually. First of all, the eight assemblies. The Khatiyas are mentioned first. The Khatiyas or Kshatriyas in Sanskrit are the nobles, the warriors. They are the land-owning, ruling class or rather caste of ancient India. The Buddha himself was born into this particular caste, the caste of the Kshatriyas or Kshatriyas, as also was Ananda. But of course the Buddha did not attach any importance to hereditary caste. And no distinction of caste was observed within the, the Sangha or spiritual community which he founded. On one occasion the Buddha said that just as the great rivers of India on reaching the ocean, the mighty ocean, lost their separate identities, their separate names. So, on becoming members of his Sangha, his spiritual community, people from the different castes, Kshatriya, Brahmana, Vaishya, Shudra and so on, they lost their identities as members of those particular castes and they all became, regardless of their social origin, simply sons and daughters, spiritual sons and spiritual daughters of the Buddha. Then the Brahmins, of course, were the hereditary priests. The hereditary priests of well, what wasn't exactly Hinduism then, it was more like Vedism. The Brahmins believed in the Vedas, the four Vedas. They believed in them not just as literary documents, in fact they were transmitted orally, they believed in them as revealed truth, as divine revelation. And the, the Brahmins officiated at a variety of sacrifices, including even animal sacrifice, based on Vedic texts. And the Brahmins, of course, were very keen on maintaining their socio religious status. In later generations, the Brahmins liked to style themselves as gods on earth. And the Buddha, it's not surprising to learn, clashed with them on a number of occasions because he did not accept their hereditary pretensions. Some Brahmins, of course, in fact quite a number of Brahmins, actually became the Buddha's 
disciples. Shariputra, for instance, was by birth a Brahmi. Shariputra is usually regarded as the, the chief disciple of the Buddha. His official title was the Dhamma Sinapati, which means the, the commander-in-chief of the Dharma. Huh? So this reminds, of the, reminds us of this quality of courage. You can't be a commander-in-chief, even of an ordinary army, without courage. Well, unless you stay right behind the lines, of course, as sometimes happens nowadays, huh? Uh, and if you are going to be the commander-in-chief of the Dhamma, the spiritual truth, well, you, you need more courage, far more courage, infinitely more courage, even than an ordinary commander-in-chief. Hmm? So, where were we? Hmm? Yes. So, Sariputra, despite his birth as a Brahmin, was one of the, or became one of the Buddha's disciples. And then, does the assembly of householders, the Gahapatis. Uh, they, they were the, the heads of families. Because in, in India in those days, as in India still today, families weren't nuclear, they were joint families. You could have 15, 20, 30, 40, up to 100 people all living under the same roof or collection of roofs as one family with a single head, the Gahapati. Hmm? And the, these householders, these Gahapatis, especially were engaged in economic activities, in trade. And then we have the ascetics. These were the non-Vedic, even anti-Vedic, religious wanderers and teachers, the freelancers. Well, they, they were the sort of, you know, alternative people of those days, we could say. Yeah? The Pali word for them is samana. Samana means one who makes an effort. That is to say, of course, a spiritual effort, an effort in the direction of personal spiritual development. The Buddha's contemporaries, according to the, the Pali scriptures especially, the Buddha's contemporaries regarded him as a Samana. He was usually referred to as Samana Gotama. Hmm? Uh, to his disciples, of course, he was the Maha Samana, the great Samana. Now, Khatiyas, Brahmins, householders, and ascetics, the members of these first four out of the eight assemblies, are of course all human beings. Khatiyas, Brahmins, householders, and ascetics, all human beings. But the members of the next four assemblies are not human beings at all. They're what we, we may describe as supernatural beings. Or perhaps I should say supernormal beings, because according to Buddhism, the supernatural, in this sense, is also natural. It's natural in the sense that it's included within the realm of what Buddhists call conditioned existence, included within the higher reaches of the samsara. Hmm? Now, in this particular text, the one from which I've been reading, uh, describing the eight assemblies, the Buddha mentions only four kinds of supernatural beings. But if we look at the Pali text as a whole, we'll find about 30 different kinds mentioned, about 30 different kinds of supernatural or supernormal beings. All this is, of course, much too complicated to go into this evening. Hmm? fascinating though it might be if we had time. Hmm? So I'm going to simplify things. 
I'm going to lump the members of the fifth and sixth assemblies together and I'm going to translate the Buddhist terms into the roughly corresponding Christian ones. So in this way we have an assembly, a double assembly, we may say, of angels, of two different kinds. But there are still two assemblies left. And I'm going to uh, continue to translate into the roughly corresponding Christian terms. We've got the assembly of martyrs and the the assembly of the, 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 the gods of the 33. So, the assembly of martyrs, let's render it as the assembly of Satan's. And the other assembly, let's render it as the assembly of archangels. So, the Buddha, the text tells us, appears in all eight of these assemblies. The Kutiyas, the Brahmins, householders, ascetics, and then using the Christian terms, angels, satans, and archangels. But, before appearing in any of them, what does he do? He says, he adopts their appearance and speech. In other words, he does what St. Paul says he does. He becomes all things to all men. Of course, in this case, all men and all gods. But he does this on an even grander scale. We may say he becomes all things not only to all men, but to all angels, all archangels, and even to all satans. And a very important principle is involved here. If you'd like, you can put aside the the mythological framework if it bothers you, as it might, and just concentrate on the principle that's involved here. The principle involved here is that if you want to communicate with people, and don't forget the Buddha entered these assemblies to communicate the Dhamma, if you want to communicate people, you must meet them halfway. You must even adopt their appearance. Look like them. You must speak their language, both literally and metaphorically. And this principle applies at all levels, from the highest to the lowest. From a Buddha's communication to those who are not Buddhas, to our own communication with one another. But you may ask, why is it necessary for us to adopt the appearance of those to whom we speak or with whom we are trying to communicate? Why is it necessary? You can understand perhaps why it's necessary for us to speak their language. If we didn't speak their language, whether literally or metaphorically, of course, they wouldn't understand us. But why do we need to look like them? Why do we appear? Why do we need to appear as one of them in the interests of effective communication? We can say 
that in the case of the Buddha, if he had appeared as the Buddha, as he really was in truth and reality, it would have been too much. It would have been too much for them, whether they were gods or whether they were human beings. It would have been rather like, you know, to take an illustration from classical Greek mythology, it would be like Zeus appearing to Semele in his full splendor. And you know what happened to Semele? Those who remember your Greek mythology, well, when Jupiter did appear as himself, as Zeus, at her rather foolish and rash request, she was simply burnt up by that overpowering splendor. Hmm? And there's also a little parallel to that in the, in the Christian tradition because according to the, the, the gospel, at the time of the transfiguration, the three disciples of Jesus who witnessed the transfiguration were confused and frightened. They could not bear it. Hmm? Presumably because they'd had a glimpse of Jesus as he really was. But on our own level, why is it important for us to even look like others, at least to some extent, when we want to communicate with them? Let me give you a bit of an example just from my own experience. As you heard a little earlier on, I returned to England from India some 30 years ago. I returned having spent 20 years in the East and for nearly all that time I lived as a Buddhist monk. And I returned to England at the invitation of Buddhist friends in London to teach Buddhism, to teach the Dharma. And I came as a Buddhist monk. Not only was I a Buddhist monk, I really looked one. <laughs> because I came complete with my flowing yellow robe, which is a bit inconvenient getting on and off buses, eh? <laughs> and uh, my shaven head. Uh, which really wasn't adapted to the English winter. And I can say that in the course of the two, three, maybe four years that I spent teaching Buddhism, teaching the Dharma as a Buddhist monk and looking like a Buddhist monk, I did have some success. But I also have to admit that I did encounter certain difficulties. And one of these difficulties was that on account of my appearance, eh, my very ascetic, you know, very spiritual, very holy appearance, eh, people started projecting onto me, eh, projecting in the Jungian sense. Of course, sometimes they projected positively, but sometimes they, they projected uh, rather negatively. They, they found me a rather threatening sort of uh, figure. Eh? But they projected. But why was it that they were able to project at all? What made it psychologically possible? They were 
able to project because I appeared different, because I was other, because I, I was strange. Hmm? I remember not long after my arrival I was interviewed by oh, various journalists. Huh? Most of them seems to come from women's magazines for some reason or other. Hmm? <laughs> and I remember being asked, are you allowed out of the monastery? Huh? <laughs> and they'd also ask, are you allowed to speak to people? Huh? As though I was some sort of Buddhist trappist. Huh? And uh, I remember also I was asked, who sent you? Hmm? <laughs> they used to say, well, nobody sent me. I was invited and I accepted the invitation and I came. They seemed to think there was, there was some sort of mysterious Buddhist Pope-like figure, you know, away in the mysterious East that was sending me, you know, on some sort of secret mysterious mission. Huh? And they were quite surprised, you know, sometimes a bit disappointed when uh, they learned I'd come, you know, more or less under, you know, my own uh, steam. Hmm. So these are just little examples. So people, yes, they, and many of them, they projected onto me, whether positively or negatively, but yes, they, they projected. And because they projected, they weren't really able to experience me or communicate with me as I really was. I won't say really was in the ultimate metaphysical sense, but at least as I really was in the, as it were, more conventional sense. And it's because they were unable to experience me as I really was, so to speak, that a real communication between us could not go beyond a certain point. In almost all cases, this is what I found. And I found that there was therefore a limit to what I could really teach. Because teaching isn't just, you know, laying down the law, spelling out the facts. Teaching involves a real, genuine communication, person to person, heart to heart, mind to mind, even soul to soul. Huh? So after a few years, I decided not to wear robes. Hmm. I, I was quite happy with robes uh, in, in India, in the East. They're quite convenient, especially in hot weather. But here in Britain, I decided after a few years not to wear them, except sometimes on ceremonial occasion, you know, when a little colour you know, was called for. Hmm? And uh, I also allowed my, my hair to grow. In fact, I must confess, I allowed it to grow somewhat longer than it is now. Hmm? <laughs> and this, this upset some people very, very much indeed. And it was, a, it was an eye-opener to me how much it shocked some people. Huh? I, was, I was just the same. Huh? I was still myself. I'd only changed these externals, but these externals seemed to mean so much to, 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 to people. And I realized in the end that um, some people at least had become upset because I'd disturbed their projections onto me. Huh? But on the whole, I found that my communication with people improved. I was able to communicate better, more as it were heart to heart and mind to mind, and I was therefore able to communicate more effectively, and I founded the FWB. But that's another story, which is known to some of you, perhaps it doesn't at this stage concern 
others. Eh? So we can see, as we can get a glimpse of something of the rationale for appearing like other people. I just thought of a little story, it's not in my notes, but uh, those who are accustomed to hearing me will know that sometimes these little stories pop up as I remember things that I heard or experienced back in India. Hmm? It's just another little example of a, a sort of projection. I remember I had a friend in Calcutta, a Bengali lady, hmm? uh, who was a very great devotee of Ramakrishna. Some of you must have heard of Ramakrishna, the famous Bengali mystic of the last century. And she said that when she was a little girl, she was taken by her mother to see the widow of Sri Ramakrishna, whose name was Sharada Devi, who was revered as a great spiritual teacher. And uh, in, in Bengali, as in, in other Indian languages, the word for goddess and lady is the same, Devi. Hmm? So, my friends told me that when she was a little girl, very, very small, hmm, her mother told her, we're going to see Sharada Devi. Huh? We're going to see this wonderful Devi, huh? this great spiritual figure. Huh? So the little girl got very, very excited. Huh? She was really looking forward to visiting that particular part of uh, Calcutta, I think it was uh, Barbazar, where Sharada Devi lived in a little hermitage. Huh? So the great day came. Along she went, this little girl of eight, this friend of mine as she became, to see the Devi, huh? the goddess. Huh? So she saw her. Huh? When she got back home, her mother asked, well, what do you think of the Devi? Huh? She said, Devi? Hmm? She said, there wasn't any Devi. There's only an old widow woman. Huh? <laughs> now what had the little girl thought? The little girl was accustomed to seeing images of Hindu gods and goddesses with six, eight, and ten, and twelve arms. And this Devi had only two arms. So she thought, it can't be a real Devi, huh? a real goddess. Huh? She'd been expecting to see someone with six, eight or ten or twelve arms. Yeah? But here was the little old widow with just two. And she was deeply disappointed. Yeah? So this is a sort of illustration of the, the kind of expectations. And in a way you could say projections, you know, that we, we built up. Of course, had the little girl been really devoted and you know, projecting strongly, which she wasn't, she might even have seen you know, ten or, or twelve arms there. I sometimes think that when I had my yellow robes on, you know, sometimes people saw, you know, six or eight or ten arms. Huh? And when there were no more yellow robes, well, there were no more arms. I was just, as it were, ordinary again. And some people were really, very really disappointed. Yeah? So anyway, that was just by the way. We can see perhaps the rationale for appearing like other people. It enables us to communicate better. If we're too different... We can be a little bit different, of course. Well, we are different anyway, but we mustn't be too different. Otherwise, people will project onto us, and projection interferes with communication. Perhaps this is the reason why bishops no longer go around in full regalia, mitre, or crozier, and so on, as they did in the Middle Ages. Huh? 
You'd be very surprised if you met a bishop in full regalia walking along Piccadilly, wouldn't you? <laughs> and uh, perhaps it's even the reason why many clergymen no longer wear what I believe is called their, their dog collars. Huh? Uh, but let's go back to our text. Let's go back to our text. Having adopted their appearance and speech, the Buddha addresses the members of the various assemblies. The text speaks of him as delivering a discourse on Dhamma. The word Dhamma or Dharma in Sanskrit has quite a number of meanings. But here, in this particular context, it means something like truth or reality. It's the truth or reality, we may say, that was, in a manner of speaking, the objective content of the Buddha's experience, his spiritual, his transcendental experience, when he became enlightened, when he became a Buddha. Now the text does not actually say what the Buddha said. It simply says that he delivered a discourse on Dhamma. It doesn't mention any specific teaching. But it does tell us what the effect of the Buddha's discourse was. For the gods or men the Buddha's hearers were instructed, inspired, fired, and delighted. And this is very important. It's important because religion, a discourse, shouldn't just instruct us, shouldn't just communicate factual information, even of a religious nature, important though such information may be, and useful though it may be. It should also inspire us. It should fire us with enthusiasm. It should fill us with overwhelming delight. One often listens to such a discourse or sermon with feelings very far removed from those of overwhelming delight. But if it cannot do that, if it cannot inspire and fire and delight us, well, it won't affect us. It won't sink in. We won't remember it. It won't help us to change our lives. Another little incident, you know, from my life in India. I, I used to give so many lectures in, in India. William was asking me just a little while ago, or rather he was reminding me that I didn't give many talks these days. And I said, well, yes, I don't. But I used to give hundreds in India. And uh, I used to go around villages and towns in, in uh, especially North India and uh, Western India, Central India and sometimes I'd uh, give a talk where I'd given a talk perhaps 15, 20 years earlier and people would remember hmm? but what would they remember? They always remembered the stories hmm? they remembered the parables hmm? they didn't always remember the principles hmm? or the rules or anything of that sort but the parables, the stories they remember because the stories had delighted them, the stories had fired them, the, the stories had even inspired them, so they remembered them. Yeah? I think that is a very important point.
point. So we see that the Buddha's hearers in each of the, the eight assemblies were instructed, inspired, fired and delighted. The Khatiyas were delighted, the Brahmins were delighted and so on. Even we are told the Maras or Satans were delighted. And think what an achievement that must have been. Eh? It's very interesting because the Maras or Satans in Buddhism are wicked, even evil beings. Eh? Wicked or evil, supernatural or supernormal beings. But the Buddha nonetheless adopts their appearance and speech too. He doesn't shrink from that. He enters their assembly too. He delivers a discourse on Dhamma to them. And what is the result? They too are instructed, inspired, fired and delighted. Presumably they are permanently affected. Presumably they are changed. Presumably they cease to be Satans. Presumably they become angels. This is an example of what we may describe as the radical optimism of Buddhism. That is to say, Buddhism's conviction that even the wickedest person, even the most monstrously evil person, can change. And this is perhaps reminiscent, if we look at the Christian tradition, reminiscent of Origen's belief that even the devil will eventually be saved. This is a belief, of course, which the Christian church as a whole has not unfortunately shared. But after they have been instructed, inspired, fired and delighted with the Buddha's discourse on the Dhamma, what do the members of the different assemblies do? What do they say? They say, who is it that speaks like this? A deva or a man? Who is it that speaks like this? The Buddha has come among them like one of themselves. But they know that it cannot be one of themselves speaking. They've never been so deeply affected before. It's rather like what happens when we read a wonderful poem by a poet of whom we've never heard before. A wonderful poem. We want to know more about him. We want to know who he is. Who is this, this wonderful new poet? So, in the same way, the Buddhas here us all ask, who is it that speaks like this? They're full of wonder. They're overwhelmed. They know that someone has spoken to them. They know it's not one of themselves, even though appearing like one of themselves. They want to know who it is. So they try to identify him. They try to categorize him. And this, is, of course, is what we usually do. We try to understand the unknown with the help of the known. 
the unfamiliar with the help of the familiar. Sometimes it works, and very often it works, as sometimes it doesn't. And the Kutiyas and the Brahmins and the others, they seem to operate with two principal categories. They ask, is he a Deva, that is to say a God, or a man? It seems not to occur to them that there is any third category. Is he a Deva, a God, or a man? And this is very much the situation in the West today. We still operate with these two categories. The Buddha, we may say, has appeared amongst us. He's appeared in the West, appeared in Europe, appeared in America, not, of course, in the flesh. We've learned about him from books. He's appeared to us from the pages of books. And we've seen pictures, we've seen images of them, some of them very impressive, very inspiring, very beautiful. And we've become acquainted with his teachings, at least to some extent. And perhaps we've even been impressed by him and his teaching. And so we want to know more about him. And we ask, who is the Buddha? And sometimes we don't really wait for an answer. We try to answer the question ourselves. We seek to categorize the Buddha by applying to him terms with which we are already familiar, just like the Katyas and Brahmins and others. And thus we see him either as a man, either as a human teacher, rather like Socrates, or perhaps like Confucius, or we see him as a kind of oriental god. Sometimes if we're a wee bit more sophisticated, we think that the Buddha was a human teacher whom his followers, unfortunately, made into a god. And we talk of the Buddha's followers of having deified him. Sometimes scholars even speak of the Buddha being a human teacher in the Theravada and uh, a deified figure in the Mahayana, and so on. You may remember those famous lines of Kipling huh? from his poem Mandalay. Huh? Uh, these reflect the popular view of the Buddha as a god. Blooming idol made of mud, what they call the great god bud, from, from Mandalay. Huh? Well, this is how some of our ancestors not so very long ago saw the Buddha, huh? the great god bud. Huh? Hindus, of course, very often see the Buddha as a god. They see him as the ninth incarnation of their own god, Vishnu. But Buddhists themselves don't accept this. They don't, don't accept that the Buddha was a human being in the ordinary sense, and they don't accept that he was a god or god with a capital G. In the West, of course, the whole question is complicated by the fact that Buddhists are seen 
to worship the Buddha. I spoke a little while ago about Buddhists offering lighted candles to the, the Buddha. Well, they offer lots of other things. They offer incense, they offer flowers, they offer food, they offer tormas, eh? they offer all sorts of symbolical representations of the whole universe. Eh? They offer all sorts of things. Eh? So, offer them, of course, before his image or his, his picture. And to, to the Christian or ex-Christian Westerner, this rather suggests that, that the Buddha is being treated as God, even that he is God for Buddhists, because in the West, customarily, worship is offered only to God. So that if you worship someone or something, it's thought, he or it must be your God. But this is not true of Buddhism. In Buddhism, worship is offered to anyone who is superior, especially spiritually superior. And Eastern Buddhists will often speak of worshipping their parents. I used to hear pious Hindus say, well, I'll, I'll come out with you just in a minute, I'll just go and worship my parents first. Eh? Meaning they go to their parents, bow down, touch their feet, take their blessing, and then off they'd go. They'd call this worshipping their parents. In the same way, worship your teacher, even your primary school teacher. Eh? They, they speak of that too, in those terms. Eh? They use the same word. It's, it's, it's derived from the Pali Sanskrit puja. Eh? Worship. So the fact that Buddhists worship the Buddha does not mean that they regard him as God. What then is the Buddha? If he is not man, if he is not God, who is he? Buddhists will say, usually, that he belongs to a third category. Not man, not God, whether with a small g or a capital G, belongs to a third category, a category quite separate and quite distinct from the other two. They will say that he is one who has completely eliminated greed, hatred and delusion, one who knows from his own personal experience absolute reality, one who is, so to speak, at one with absolute reality, one who possesses supreme wisdom, who manifests infinite compassion. And they will say that one who has achieved all this by his own human efforts, but who has gone so far beyond humanity as we know it, that he can no longer be called a man without nonetheless assuming the cosmic functions that we usually associate with the idea of God, with a capital G, who is neither man nor God, who belongs to a distinct third category, he is Buddha, the Buddha. So that when we ask who is the Buddha, we can really only say, he is the Buddha.
In the text, the Khatiyas, the Brahmins, and so on, they cannot even say that because after instructing them, the Buddha just disappears and they are left wondering. They are left wondering, was he a deva or a man? We'll come back to that in a minute. Meanwhile, I want to say just something about the Buddha's other titles. Buddha, the word Buddha itself, of course, is, is a title. It's not a proper name. And it means one who understands, one who is wise, who is awake, awake to reality. But the Buddha is known by quite a number of other titles, and we don't always realize this. In the West, the Buddha is generally known simply as the Buddha, the enlightened one. But in the Buddhist scriptures, he's often referred to as the Tathagata. In fact, he is represented in the Buddhist scriptures as usually referring to himself in the third person as the Tathagata. There's a lot of discussion about the meaning of this term, and there are several different explanations. And there's more than one grammatical analysis of the term, but I won't bother you with this. It means, Tathagata means literally, he who goes. But it also means, he who comes. The Buddha goes through wisdom. He goes through wisdom from the mundane to the transcendental. And he comes through compassion back from the transcendental into the mundane. He comes in order to teach, in order to show the path to liberation. He comes in order to instruct, inspire, fire and delight with a discourse on the Dhamma. As he does when he enters the assemblies of the Khatiyas, the Brahmins and so on. The Buddha is thus the embodiment of both wisdom and compassion. He goes through the one, comes through the other. And this underlines the point, the fact that the Buddha comes through compassion. This underlines the point that Buddhism is not a cold religion, as people sometimes think. It stresses compassion just as much as it stresses wisdom. Tathagata has another meaning. Tathagata means one who acts as he speaks and speaks as he acts. This might seem a rather prosaic virtue, you know, nothing very exciting, nothing very exotic, but it's not really so. Because we shall realize if we reflect a minute that our own words and acts are very, very rarely in, in anything like harmony. There's almost always a discrepancy, whether slight or great, a discrepancy between our words and our actions, our, our professions and our behavior. But in the Buddha's case, in a Buddha's case, it's not so. In him, speech and action are in perfect harmony. Moreover, they're in harmony at the highest possible, the highest conceivable level. The Buddha is an enlightened being and he speaks and acts as an enlightened being. The Buddha is also known as Loka Vidu, which means 
knower of the world. This doesn't mean that the Buddha is worldly wise. Though, of course, one may also say the Buddha wasn't exactly lacking in worldly wisdom. It means that he knows the world, knows mundane existence as it really is. He knows that the world is transitory. He knows that existence involves suffering. He knows that it possesses no inherent reality of its own. And this knowledge of his, this knowledge of the world is not merely theoretical. It's a matter of real understanding, real experience. And he therefore acts in accordance with it. We of course do not know the world. Worldly wise though we may be, we do not know mundane existence as it really is. We like to think that the world is permanent, pleasurable and possessed of an inherent reality of its own. And because we think in this way, we tend to become attached to the world, very, very attached to it. We try to cling on to this or that aspect of it and in this way we create suffering for ourselves and very often sufferings for others too. The Buddha is also known as the Jinnah. Jinnah means the conqueror or the victor. He's known as the Jinnah not because he has conquered others but because he has conquered himself. The Dhammapada says the Dhammapada is one of the shorter and most popular Buddhist texts. The Dhammapada says, and it's the Buddha speaking, though one may conquer a thousand men in battle a thousand times, he who conquers himself has the more glorious victory. Another of the Buddha's titles is Bhagavan. Bhagavan means one who is possessed of all positive, auspicious qualities. Compassion, wisdom, purity, generosity, and so on. And the Buddha is usually called Bhagavan, usually spoken of as Bhagavan or addressed as Bhagavan when he is regarded as an object or devotion. And then there is the title of Mahavira. Mahavira means great hero. Here of course we can see the quality of courage coming in. Great hero. The Buddha is so called because he has had the courage to face the forces of darkness, the forces of evil, both within his own mind and outside. The Buddha is not a meek and mild sort of character. He was vigorous, he was bold, he was fearless, he was resolute. I rather shocked some of my friends a few years ago, I remember, another little anecdote, because they asked me whom I thought the Buddha resembled huh? among all the different historical characters, or rather which historical character I thought most resembled the Buddha. And I said at once, Julius Caesar. And they were really shocked. 
But why did I say Julius Caesar? Why did I say that Julius Caesar huh, resembled the Buddha more than any other historical character? Well, it was because of his promptitude and courage. If Caesar saw that something was to be done, I'm not speaking now whether it was ethically right or wrong, if he saw that there was something to be done, he did it. No hesitation, no delay, no shilly-shally, no wobbling, no uncertainty, no doubt, no scepticism, no lack of self-confidence. He was an embodiment of self-confidence. So was the Buddha on an infinitely higher spiritual plane. The Buddha, we may say, don't misunderstand, don't take this too literally, the Buddha was the Julius Caesar of the spiritual world. Huh? <laughs> so, and of course we mustn't forget that the Buddha had been born into a warrior family. He didn't have a bookish education, he didn't go to university, he couldn't even read or write. There's one incident in one of the Gospels where, the, where Jesus is represented as drawing characters on the ground in the dust, yes? Those who know their Bibles. But the Buddha isn't represented as being able even to do that. Because in the India of his day, there was no literacy. Knowledge, wisdom was transmitted by word of mouth. So the Buddha didn't have a bookish education. He learned the traditions of his community. He heard religious teachings and he himself afterwards taught orally. The sort of education the Buddha had well, might even have shocked some of us. He was, he was educated apparently in all sorts of martial arts and uh, was strong and bold and vigorous and those qualities he directed subsequently into the spiritual path. In fact, once he told his disciples that they too were warriors. He said to them, Disciples, what are you? He said, you're warriors. And you're warriors because you fight. You fight for ethics, sila. You fight for meditation, samadhi. You fight for wisdom, prajna. You fight for freedom, vimukti. So the Buddha was a hero, a great hero, a Mahavir. The Buddha was also called Loka Jesta. This means roughly the elder brother of the world. He's called the elder brother of the world because he has been born before us, like an elder brother. Not born before us as a human being, born before us as a Buddha. And this suggests that what the Buddha has attained, we too can attain. At present, we are not Buddhists. We are unenlightened. But we can become enlightened. At least we can make progress towards enlightenment if we make the effort, if we tread the spiritual path, if we practice ethics, meditation, and develop wisdom and achieve liberation. But perhaps I've said enough, perhaps more than enough, about the Buddha's titles. It's time we got back to our text. You'll remember that the Katyas and others were instructed, inspired, fired and delighted by the Buddha's discourse on the Dhamma. But they don't know who has spoken to them. They're just left wondering. 
And then what happens? The Buddha simply disappears. He doesn't introduce himself. He doesn't identify himself. He just vanishes. And he tells Ananda, and having thus instructed them, I disappeared. And still they did not know. He who has just disappeared, was he a deva or a man? Now, we may think that we're in a better position than the Kratyas and others. We may think we know who it was. After all, the Buddha in this text tells us who it was, or at least he tells Ananda who it was. But do we really know who it was? Do we really know who is the Buddha? Even after hearing those words of the text. Do you really know who the Buddha is even after listening to me for the last hour and ten minutes? I'm reminded of some very early Indian sculptures depicting scenes from the life of the Buddha. They depict the Buddha attaining enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. They depict him teaching his disciples, depict him subduing a mad elephant and so on. But there's a very strange thing about all these representations and that is that the Buddha himself is not represented. The Buddha himself is not shown. Everything else is represented. Trees, buildings, animals, crowds of people. But the Buddha is not represented. Where you would have expected to find the Buddha there's an empty space and everything is happening as it were around this empty space. Sometimes in the empty space there's a symbol. Just a Bodhi tree if the scene is that of the Buddha's enlightenment. A stupa if the scene is that of his final passing away. A Dharma chakra, a wheel of the Dhamma if the Buddha is supposed to be teaching, and so on. So why is this? Why the empty space? Why just the symbol? Originally, it was thought, that to say thought by Western art critics, that the artists or the sculptors felt that they could not do justice to the figure of the Buddha. But later, it was realized that this was not the reason, not the real reason why they did not represent him. They did not represent him because they wanted to convey the fact that the Buddha, as such, was a transcendental being. In their language, he was Nukutra. He was beyond the world. 
or hypercosmic. He was a transcendental being because he'd realized the transcendental state of nirvana. We can go further than that. We speak of the Buddha, nirvana, etc., as though they were objects. We can't really help speaking of them in that way if we are to speak of them at all. But in reality, they are not objects. That is to say, not objects as opposed to subjects, not opposed to perceiving subjects. They are not objects because in reality, in themselves, so to speak, they transcend the subject-object duality. But although they are not objects, we think of them and speak of them as though they were objects. We can hardly do otherwise, as I've said, if we are to speak at all about them. So the Buddha appears to the Katyas and others. He appears to them as one of themselves. He appears to them as an object, an objectively existing person or being. And as an object, a person, he instructs, inspires, fires and delights them. Then he disappears. So what does this mean? What does this disappearance mean? The disappearance means that he is not really an object. It means that he transcends the subject-object distinction or duality. He is not included in the picture. In a sense, it's no use asking who he is. If asking who means trying to identify him as a particular kind of object, a particular kind of person-object, there's a verse, a very famous verse from the Diamond Sutra, one of the best known of the Mahayana Buddhist scriptures, which is relevant here. The Buddha again is represented as speaking and is represented as saying, those who by my former did see me and those who followed me by voice wrong the efforts they engaged in me those people will not see. From the Dharma should one see the Buddhas. From the Dharma bodies comes their guidance. Yet Dharma's true nature cannot be discerned and no one can be conscious of it as an object. The Dharma is not an object. The Buddha is not an object. One cannot know who the Buddha is by asking what kind of object he is. So, how can one know the Buddha? Or perhaps a story from the Zen tradition may throw some light on the matter. And with this, I'll conclude. The legendary founder of the Zen tradition was, of course, Bodhidharma. 
Bodhidharma was an enlightened master who went from South India to China in the 6th century. And when he'd been in China for a while, he actually met the Emperor of China. And the Emperor of China in those days was a very pious Buddhist. He'd performed many acts, many great works of piety. He'd built temples and monasteries. He distributed lots of money in arms and so on. So when, when he met the South Indian master, the emperor asked the master how much merit he had accumulated as a result of all of those good deeds. Yeah. It seems that the emperor was quite proud of his good deeds. Yeah. So he asked Bodhidharma, how much merit do you think I've accumulated by performing all these good deeds? So, what, did, what sort of reply did Bodhidharma say? He said, no merit at all. And the emperor, well like a lot of pious people in similar circumstances, was deeply shocked. And when he'd recovered himself, he asked another question. He asked, what then do you teach? Meaning, if you don't teach that good deeds should be performed and that good deeds produce merit, what on earth do you teach? And Bodhidharma replied, vast emptiness and nothing meritorious therein. Vast emptiness is of course a Buddhist term for ultimate reality beyond the subject-object duality and therefore, of course, beyond self, beyond merit, beyond accumulation of merit and so on. But of course, the poor pious emperor became just still more confused. But he managed to come up just with one more question. Well, if you teach, if there's just this vast emptiness, eh? nothing meritorious within, eh? It's just nothing as it were. Well, who are you just standing before me? In other words, if everything is empty, if there's no subject-object distinction, who are you? Well, Bodhidharma's reply was short and to the point. He said, I don't know. I don't know. So the emperor was left wondering. <laughs> Just as the Kutiyas and others were left wondering when the Buddha disappeared. Just as we perhaps are left wondering. But if we wonder long enough and if we wonder deeply enough perhaps one day we shall get an answer to our question who is the Buddha?
We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 